This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our show here on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management. Just a reminder, we're live every Thursday at 4 p.m. and the show replays a few times throughout the week as well. Our show focuses on how established firms can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges We bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and work with us. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We will have some guests to talk to today about interesting innovation themes, but uh, right now, I wanted to spend a little bit of time just reflecting on how innovation is really happening nowadays and how quickly everything is going. It's an important task to think about how to manage disruption, both from the established firm point of view and, of course, on the other side, the opportunity which arises when you have the side of the startup, which is usually the disruptor in the whole process. So, of course, it takes two to tango. There's usually an ecosystem that takes place. And in that, the world and the consumer, as well as the stakeholders benefit, that's been the process by which things are going. So the reason I mention that is in our show, we always present the incumbent as being the challenged and the disruptor as the one who's out to eat their lunch. But of course, we need both in order to be able to manage the process very effectively and efficiently. Today's guests uh, are really going to embody both the startup and the established uh, industry side. Coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Gaurav Dillon, who has been called the master plumber of the digital age and is the co-founder of data integration company Informatica and is currently CEO of SnapLogic. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Jim Brady. Jim is currently the CEO and co-founder of Spirited Media, They run local news sites like Billy Penn here in Philadelphia or The Incline in Pittsburgh. Jim is a veteran of innovation in the media industry, working as executive editor of WashingtonPost.com in the past, as well as the editor-in-chief of Digital First Media. Jim, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Glad to be here. I first want to just ask you to get us situated. Tell us a bit about Spirited Media. What does it do? What do you offer? Well, we offer local news sites aimed at a audience that's sort of 40 and younger. You know, if you look at newspapers and television stations and the demographics that use those platforms, they tend to be older. And we were we thought there was a dearth of news sites that focused on local news that were aiming at an audience that was younger and more mobile and wanted to go out and do things. And so we launched Billy Penn in 2014 and two more sites since. So what does it mean to target this younger audience? And what are they looking for that's perhaps different uh, from traditional media outlets? Well, there's business models that are different. I mean, we, we focus our business model on events and membership and not on advertising. Because if you if you read research about this demographic, that one of the lines you see frequently is, 
you know, I hate millennials, the M word, you know, that's a very broad demographic. <laughs> yes, overused. So I really, I usually say younger demographic, but yeah. one of the phrases you see constantly is I prefer experiences over possessions. Yeah. So they'd rather do things than buy things. So we try to give them things to do. On top of that, they're interested in different issues. So when we cover city hall here in Philadelphia, we're going to focus more on, you know, bike law, bike lanes, marijuana laws, like things that are that are aimed more at a younger demo rather than talking about pensions and things that are for. So even the coverage is shaded by what people in this uh, demographic are interested in. And, uh, and most importantly, I think it's designed and built for a mobile phone, which is clearly the platform of use for that audience. Absolutely. Now, now your emphasis on, is on the local market. Yes. Is that right? And, and yes. coverage as well. How do you balance that between local news and perhaps what's going on more broadly? We don't care about what's going on more broadly. I mean, that's sort of, I, honestly, we, th we think it's a feature, not a bug. Um, you know, there's lots of sites out there that, that do a fabulous job reporting on what's going on outside of Philadelphia and outside the United States. But, but I think one of the strengths is when you come to Billy Penn, you're going to get all Philadelphia all the time. And I yeah. think in a world that, you know, I like that about us. And I think we don't want to necessarily be that broad. I get, I get frequently get calls saying, love your sites. The one thing you're missing is international news. And I'm yeah. like, I, I don't know what having Syria news on Billy Penn would do for us. There's, a, there's people who can cover it far better than we can. If you're depending on Billy Penn for your news about what's going on in Syria, you're going to be woefully uninformed. So it's a compliment to uh, what exists out there already. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, we, you know, even, even within the city, I think we're a compliment. The way we kind of... Uh, look at our reporters is we never want to be the 20th person standing at a press conference because <laughs> yeah. there are stories not being told in this city every day that we could have our reporters at. And because curation is a huge part of what we do, which means yeah. we link to other sites that are doing good work, us being the 20th person at a press conference does us zero good because we can just link to a story written by the Inquirer or Philly Magazine or somebody else who really wrote a thorough piece. And we can go off and do a story they're not doing. Fascinating. Um, I I got a sense that your business model has also you know evolved and, yeah. and is uh, is different uh, from the past. I want to go back to your earlier days. You know, you clearly made the jump into the web early, working at WashingtonPost.com, but also America Online, the famous uh, AOL. Can you describe those early days of online news and what you learned in the process? Oh, it was wonderful. It was great. It was great. I, I got into it in '95. Went over to become the sports editor of what became WashingtonPost.com. I was there before it even launched. I yeah. was there for the launch. But departments didn't matter that much. Everybody helped, helped on everything. And I remember the first big news story we covered was the TWA uh, explosion, uh, yeah. 800. And, like, we were just trying to figure out how to cover this. Same thing with the Olympic bombing that year in Atlanta. And it was just so much fun making up the rules as you went along. I mean, we didn't have any... You know, nowadays you can look and look. let's see how the New York Times covered that thing last year and see if we can get any ideas. There was nobody to look at. Like, we were just inventing it as we went. And I think it was probably the most exciting time to be in media. You felt like, you know, the good night, good night and good luck guys, you know, in the early <laughs> days of television. Yeah. You know, you felt like that because you were just making it up. And, and sometimes it, it worked. Sometimes it didn't. But it was joyful. And, you know, there's things I see out there today. Like, when I was at WashingtonPost.com, we had this idea that, hey, if you – we should take a – RFK Stadium where the Redskins play, we should yeah. take a picture from every section so everybody can see what the field looks like from that section. We were like, whoa, <laughs> mind's blown. And now, like, everybody does that for everything. It's like such a – but, like, we really – I think we're among the first to have that idea, and that's what made it so much fun. So what was novel about it? I mean, they're the obvious things that you can cover, things instantaneously, and you can share that information, update it. Um, what was the excitement and the thrill about? What really got you going? Uh, for me, it was the fact that the news never stopped. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's – it, you know, I, I'd worked at the newspaper, the Washington Post newspaper, for eight years before that. 
And, you know, you'd be really kind of, oh, man, that story happened right after we closed the paper today. And now we got to wait 18 hours to do anything with this story. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like the minute something happens, you're on it. And so that's exciting. Now it's also exhausting. And, you know, we certainly learned that in, the, in those days, you know, sound like an old, doing an old man thing here. But like <laughs> when news broke, when yeah. Princess Diana gets in that car crash on Saturday night, like we don't just pull out, pull out our laptops and start updating the site because we couldn't then. We had to all go in because like remote was just not a thing at that point. Connection speeds were bad. Sure. So like 20 people would just converge on the office and work. And so it was pretty exhausting. But I think it was that exhaustion was sort of easily matched by the excitement of it all. This really sounds like an exciting time. You know, I remember having gone to college in the uh, early 90s and being just uh, excited about first email, which was on Unix back then. And then after that, getting access to the World Wide Web because Mosaic came out in 1995 mm -hmm. and then Netscape Navigator in 1996. And nowadays it's very difficult for people to imagine, but it was a revolution. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I say all the time, I mean, it's, it's impossible for most people the age we're going after at our own sites to, yeah. to remember what life was like before an internet because they don't know. Yeah. You know, they barely remember it from their childhood. And, you know, it's just people take calling people for, you know, so I just text them or I call them on their mobile phone. But like, it was hard to find people 20 years ago if they weren't at home. It's impossible. <laughs> you know, technology has just moved so quickly and in such fascinating ways that, you know, I'm glad I actually was there before, you know, the internet really kicked in because I think I could appreciate it more. You know, and I think, you know, I never understood why people didn't think it was going to become the next big thing. I mean, at the mm -hmm. time I moved, I left the newspaper to go to the website and a lot of people in the, I worked in the sports department and they thought I was nuts. And only one guy came up to me and said, it's a really smart move. You know, we're all going to be working for you someday. <laughs> but like, he got it, that this thing was going to be big. And I just couldn't grasp why anybody didn't see that, right? When, 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 yeah. when has giving consumers all of the power to make decisions about what they want to consume lost in the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. And now we talk about it uh, as a given. But but I want to go back and make the connection to the business model because you started talking about mm -hmm. that as well. Back then, I can imagine there were some people who thought it was not only crazy, but it was actually cannibalizing your business oh, because yeah. online was back then at least free, or that was the interpretation of the web, that everything should be free, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the thinking around that? There was very little thinking about it at the time because it all happened so quickly that I think there was sort of the sense we just got to get there and then mm -hmm. we'll it. let's get a beachhead and then we'll start to figure out the business model. But we can't not be on the internet and we can't get there quickly. We can't not get there quickly. So, you know, that, you know, we started, this is maybe a little known fact about the post. We actually started not as a website, but as a dial up proprietary service oh. on something called AT&T Interchange, which was sort of a short lived thing. So we actually started as a paid site. Like it was, and you know, we'd get excited every time somebody would fax in their order, you know, uh, so that's how different it was then. But when we went to the web, we were free because, you know, be honest, we'd had no way to collect money at that point. Yeah. Nobody wanted to put information on the internet in 1996. Yeah. And so like there's, there's been this big debate in the journalism community for 25 years now, whether the mistake we made was not charging right out of the gate. Yeah. And as somebody who was there when this all started, like we literally couldn't. Yeah. Like the systems were just getting built at that point. And yeah. even if we'd had the systems, I'd always argue that there was going to be somebody who was going to undercut and they were going to come in for free and they were going to suck up a lot of the traffic. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's sort of this myth out there that people have always paid for quality <laughs> content and it's not really true. You pay for, you know, you don't really pay for terrestrial radio. You don't pay for broadcast television. True. And the truth is you really didn't pay for the newspaper. You might have put that quarter in the box, but 90% of the revenue was coming from the advertising side. And 
as I've joked many times, there's a reason you can put a quarter in a newspaper machine and take all of them because <laughs> right. that's not the business model. If that's the business model, you can't take all the papers for a quarter. You get one for a quarter. So, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really think if we put paywalls up in 1995, we'd be in any different place than we are today. So we moved from subscription to ads really driving the revenue, right? And then when you were doing this online stuff, you know, WashingtonPost.com and other places, was that also geared towards ads from yeah. the beginning? It was geared toward ads. I mean, I was, it was always a page view impression game. The more, the better. Yeah. And, you know, if you couldn't get page views up, then you would just put more ads on each page. Yeah. And I think the, the challenge with that and why, the, why we never pursued that model here yeah. was it sort of puts the business side and the editorial side at odds with each other because the business side wants more page views. Yeah. And the things that you need to do to get more page views can be terrible for the consumer, like paginating a 20-inch story into five pages, doing pop-up ads and pop-under ads, yeah. and, you know. And I think the more we, more of that we had to do, the harder we made it for people to read the sites, which in yeah. turn made it harder to get paid views. You know, it was this sort of cycle that really Vicious hurt cycle. us. Right. And so when we started Spirited, the idea was that we want our business model and our editorial model to be aligned, which is we want people to come to events, we want them to sign up for the newsletter, we want them to become members. And, yeah. and, and we're all aligned on how to do that. There's, yeah. no, there's no inherent tension there. Yeah, I like that because we had in between come back to subscription or at least yeah. partial, right? I mean, so when you look at the Washington Post or uh, the New York Times, you know, was a pioneer in that as well with their op-eds, they realized were popular and other content, they decided that, you know what? People will pay for some of the things, but you're taking it a step further now. Yeah. Events, memberships, you know. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I think we want. I think you know we're trying to monetize passion. We're not trying to monetize page views because we, yeah. we we cover three cities and we only cover those cities. So you start with a smaller potential marketplace. Mm -hmm. Your marketplace is really Philadelphians and expats. That's really it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on a daily, constant basis. So we just never felt like we could go down the path of scale. But if we can get people to give us, you know, $100, $120 a year to become a member, then we get, you know, four or 5,000 of those in a market. That covers a lot of the cost for sites as small as we are. Yeah. So we just decided let's, you know, in a way we were kind of going after the same model that the information has gone after, which is a limited number of people who write a decent-sized check. And then there's other people who will visit who will never yeah. necessarily become members but that's fine we can still run ads for them yeah you know we don't do pop-ups we don't do pop-unders but we still run traditional display advertising so i think for us it's we, we this is a it's people business right if you can't you know i think the the chat the, the way i the way i've been i've phrased it a few times is i don't want to have to drive up ad impressions i want to make an actual impression mm -hmm. on a human you know rather than you know, on, a, on a web page and that's really what we've done since the launch what a nice way to think about it now in that spirit do no pun intended, but right. do uh, all the editorial and other teams work independently of each other no. at these different local sites, or they what can you share across? Yeah, they sit at the same table. Yeah. They work together all the time. I mean, that's and we interview for that, which is look. Everybody understands there's a business editorial yeah. line that you do not cross. You don't write things to pump up advertisers. You don't let your editorial and business operations influence each other like on what the public sees but they should be talking to each other there's no reason if our people are putting together a good event they should yeah. be taking event ideas from the newsroom too and the newsroom by the way is willing to help out at events like I, one of the moments i remember so well from starting uh, billy penn was we had an event where we had two people at the front desk checking or the front table checking people in mm -hmm. everybody showed up right at six o'clock when overwhelmed this front table and two of the reporters ran up there grabbed their ipads and went up and started checking people in like i didn't ask them to do it yeah but they just did it because they were part of a team and it's like look if events needs help we can go help yeah and it was great to see because you don't see as much of that in the legacy newsrooms where roles are much more divided yeah but none of it affects like we don't 
write anything. We've never had the the, the uh, sort of bright white line crossed in terms of editorial integrity, but like we got to talk to each other and work together or else we'll fail. So you're reliving those good old days in new ways now. Yeah, I am. But the tools are a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I am reliving it. And I think, you know, I've been in both sides. I've been, I've really done three different kinds of jobs. Your traditional, you know, digital executive jobs, entrepreneurial things where I start a new thing inside an existing company, now entrepreneurial, which is starting something out. And they're all different. They're all interesting in their own way. Yeah. But this is all the most fun because you really do get to chart your own course. And look, at the end of the day, when things go wrong, I got nobody to blame <laughs> but myself. Fascinating. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Chodhi, and I'm speaking with Jim Brady, a digital news veteran who is the CEO of Spirited Media and formerly executive editor of WashingtonPost.com, amongst other places. I want to, Jim, touch upon some of the aspects you're talking about, because you're getting into fundamentals of how do I manage fast-changing and innovative organizations. You know, there are notions out there of separating different teams, but then they get too siloed, even though they might be very well specialized. Um, But if you bring them all together, then there might not be focus, and you might not be able to specialize. How do you find the balance between these things? It's it's a difficult balance, and each department has, you know, every executive has opinions about what they think we ought to do, and at some point, you got to make the decision in which direction you go. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it... I have not found, you know, we're not big enough for that to get too complicated. I think it gets more complicated when the size of the, you know, the staff gets up beyond 25, 30. And, yeah. you know, we have an, we have a, essentially a corporate team of four. Yeah. And we have like, you know, five or six people at each of the sites. So there's no one group that's so much bigger than everybody else that it kind of overwhelms them. So I think we've, we've always been pretty collaborative. Everybody has a chance to weigh in on what they, you know, what they think our priorities ought to be. And at the end of the day, I have to set them. Yeah. But, um, but it, you know, it's part of it is hiring too. I think when, People talk about challenges of legacy newsrooms. You know, they their first thing they do is they'll go complain about, oh, you know, the legacy journalists don't get it. Well, in fairness to them, they weren't hired for that, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. they were hired 20 mm-hmm. years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago to do a specific job, cover a specific beat, and then the world exploded on them. And now they're being asked to tweet and shoot video. And, <laughs> you know, it's a huge advantage to be able to hire from scratch yeah. because you know exactly what you need. Like, if we're going to do events... We have to hire reporters who are comfortable working a room. Yeah. And not all reporters are. You know, we yeah. can be a pretty introverted bunch. And so, all right, we got to hire people who can do that. You know, so, I mean, so we've always been very, always been hiring for very specific roles, which helps a ton. And yeah. so I think that leads to less conflict down the road when you're trying to sort out uh, priorities. Makes a lot of sense. Now, you're in a unique position, as you uh, mentioned, which is you've been on the side of the incumbent player and the startup, the disruptor and the uh, disrupted. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing right now works really well in the small organization, mm-hmm. the one who challenges the incumbent. Now, coming back to the Washington Post and other organizations that you've been with, how do you keep the place innovative and adaptive and doing the same things when you've got that scale inside? Well, the only way you can stay innovative is not to do the same things because the world keeps changing on you and you've got to keep doing different things. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the higher, you know, any of the jobs I've had before, the idea has always been you have to hire people who are flexible. Yeah. And the question I get asked the most, which I always roll my eyes at, is where is this all going to be in five years? And the truth is obviously none of us know. Yeah. Right. If we if we knew, we wouldn't also be chasing a business model on the journalism side of things online, right? I mean, it's, we don't know, but the key is to have people who are curious about that and will shift when something comes along that forces that shift. And I think that's where the legacy newsrooms I've worked with sometimes struggle. Yeah, of like, course. Yeah. They just don't, you know, that shift to suddenly saying you got to produce on a 24-7 basis yeah. is really hard for people who are used to following a story at 7 
you know, calling in at nine to make sure there are no questions and then going ahead with their night. Yeah. Now it's like boom, boom, boom. So, um, so it's a real challenge, but and I think it takes a certain type to be able to uh, make that adjustment. And look, there were lots of people in the Washington Post newsroom when I was there, whether it was Gene Weingart and Howie Kurtz, Mike Wilbon, uh, who were willing to try almost anything to tr in this new medium. They wanted mm -hmm. to get their name out there. It would be a live discussion. Or they'd do special videos for us. So there were a lot of people who were willing to play ball. I think where it got tougher is at the mid-level where you have the people who are actually putting the paper out every day. Yeah. Like, it's a lot harder for them to focus on the Internet for long periods of time because they have a deadline. Yeah. And that paper's got to be at, in bed by this time. Yeah. And the Internet can publish any time. So by definition, it's hard to... Even if you say you're going to be a digital first publication, yeah. if you have a TV broadcast that has to air at a certain time or a newspaper that has to go to bed at a certain time, you almost can't be digital first because that's always going to drive the production schedule is the, the legacy product. Yeah. And the Internet can fill in around it. So that's, I think, the struggle, the tension in most of these newsrooms is they should be digital first, but like, yeah. it's hard because you lose thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you go late on a, you know, well, maybe hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of dollars if you run the papers out a half hour late. So know? how do you overcome that tension and break the inertia so that there's a bit more of a fluid relationship between the two and they can work in sync? I think the hard, I think the hard part there is how do you, you know, I, I, I think the solution has been to create print teams that really focus on the paper and digital teams that really focus on digital, mm -hmm. which ironically is a return back to the old models. You know, I, when I was at WashingtonPost.com, mm -hmm. we had separate newsrooms for the first 15 years of the or first 13 years of the website mm -hmm. like we had literally i worked for when i was editor i worked for a publisher who worked for don graham mm -hmm. and len downey who was editor of the paper worked for don graham i worked for a publisher who worked for don graham so we weren't taking orders from the print side and that was a controversial structure mm -hmm. in the industry everybody thought the print people should be in charge of the website but it worked for us for a long time because we would not have done as interesting work as we did if we were forced to get everything approved by the print newsroom because they didn't really understand the internet at that point and we did so why would we be taking orders from them and most of my friends over there who always hated that structure yes have since told me thank god that was a structure because we would have screwed it up <laughs> like we just didn't understand the medium in a way we do now 10 years later so i think there is a certain separation you have to have to do it really well. I don't yeah. think you can say yeah. one team's going to put out print and digital every day and we'll just change roles out. I just don't think that works. Yeah, we think of this as ambidextrous organizations, yeah. you know, ones which have these two types and almost two cultures that are coexisting. Yeah. I think the challenge becomes when there's a relationship. So one perhaps is cannibalizing the other or mm. influencing the other in some way. Um, that's when those tensions arise that you're describing as well, right? Yeah, and, and, and the fate of the brand in yeah. a new medium. I mean, you know, we the thing, the complaint we heard the most yeah. at the Post was, you guys are hurting the brand. Yeah. You're doing frivolous things that are making the brand look silly. This is the Washington Post. And, and I just never understood that because the brand, you know, you guys are doing these cheeky things. <laughs> yeah. It's like, have you ever read the paper? There's plenty of cheeky things in the paper. Uh -huh. You know, it's like, oh, and, I mean, most of the things that we did online were done in print. The technology might have been different, but the, the sort of journalistic theory behind it wasn't that different. And that always annoyed me when people would suggest that we were just trying these crazy things that were going to take the brand down. And I don't think the brand has suffered much from mm -hmm. uh, being on the Internet. If anything, it's, it's gotten it to hundreds of, you know, a couple hundred million more people than we're getting it in print because the Washington Post is only physically distributed in the Washington area in print. Yeah. So this opened the world up to the Post. So, And I think they've done just fine. Absolutely. One of the... Um 
one of the important pieces that you keep mentioning is people. Mm -hmm. So people are clearly important. Um, are people the solution to remaining innovative and creative over time and managing these challenges, or are there other process or organizational aspects that you think could be adapted? I think it's a, I think it's the largest one. I mean, that's certainly people is the people are the key. Um, you got to find people who fit into you know what you're trying to do, and you know, and we we were very and, and we put such a premium yeah. on people getting along with each other. You know, and, and not all newsrooms think this. You know, this is a good thing. A lot of a lot of people who manage newsrooms think bringing in very divergent personalities and having them battle it out is sort of creates this creative tension that makes it a better product. And right. There may be some truth to that, but when you're doing a startup and you're only going to have five people, you can't have all five of them kind of barking at each other all day long. <laughs> so we had two reporter candidate, two reporter jobs open at Billy Penn when we launched. Yeah. And we actually interviewed reporters together. And twos, because we wanted to see how they reacted to another person in the room. We didn't yeah. want to just have one person over here and then say, "Do you like him or did you like her?" Yeah. We kind of wanted to see how they would react when they were in there with another job candidate. And you know, there were two jobs open, so this wasn't Hunger Games or anything sure. like that. But we watched how some people would get in the room and sort of clam up, like they didn't really want to talk about their story in front of another reporter. And we had two who came in the room and just kept bringing raising the level of the discussion on the story you know what you yeah. could do you could pull the data from the government and do this it's, oh that's a great idea yeah and we just hired both of them and they were fabulous both of them and it was just such a good way to interview because you got to see how they'd react to other people which i think is crucial that makes a lot of sense you know in our admissions mm -hmm. process for wharton mba candidates we also have these group interviews to precisely figure that out because you know it's not individuals stars who really do this. It's really a team, and yeah. they bring complementary skills to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one plus one equals three should be your management philosophy. You get one plus one equals one, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's chemistry is everything. And so that's we certainly hired to that everywhere we've been. And, and again, you have to get people who are willing to, to make a left, uh, a very quick left when the world changes, and suddenly you got to go over there and chase this. Yeah. And I think that, you know, those are not that easy to find. And, and, and lest it sound like I'm picking on legacy people, there are plenty of people who got into the digital world early who like didn't want to adapt to mobile. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not like it's just people who come from print or broadcast who don't can't make the shift. There are plenty of digital people who didn't want to keep going along with that transition either. And so and you gotta fight it yourself sometimes. Like Christ, I gotta learn another thing. <laughs> oh God, it's every time I think we're done with this, now we got AI and drones. That's and, right. But then you get over that and you realize like what are the opportunities to produce better journalism with these tools and there are plenty of them. Yeah, and clearly, you know, we need to keep on learning. Whatever we learn in college or anywhere else is quickly outdated nowadays, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Talking about your own career, you moved from the editorial side to mm. a bit more of the business side. So mm. I, though I can see that your passion for the curation mm. and, the, and really the content uh, is really still very much there. What drove you to that, and what did you learn in that process? Well, I mean, what drove me there was local news. You know, I was... Um, my high school class award on Long Island, people got things like coolest, nicest. I got like the Newsday Carrier Award because I was the only kid who brought a newspaper to school every day. So <laughs> suffice it to say it was one of the less cool awards anybody got, and it certainly came with the fewest subsequent dates. But but I've always had a passion for local news and knowing what's going on in the community yeah. and watching what's happened to it in the last 8 to 10 years is just brutal. I mean, yeah. the number of people covering communities is down more than 50%. And, you know, in my mind, there is a business model for it. The business model is getting that money from consumers who love what you do, not advertisers who want to be, take advantage of your scale. Yeah. So I just wanted to, I decided I wanted to start something when I left Digital First Media, you know, had enough wherewithal to go ahead. And my wife and I started mm -hmm. uh, Spirited Media and it was just a chance to 
take my own ideas and put them into action. And at the same time, if you can find a model that works, kind of help clear the path for what the future of local news looks like from an economic standpoint. Because as much as I love journalism, like journalism without a business model is nothing. Mm-hmm. It won't exist. And you know, some will, some places will exist on, you know, on philanthropy, you know, in philanthropy and other ways. But like, if you want to create the most scalable model is always a for-profit model that works. Sure. You know, it's it, billionaires are not scalable. Foundations are not scalable. I mean, yeah. they scale to an extent. Yeah. You eventually run out of places you can go get money from. And so if you can make your own money, it's a far better way to go. So that's really what I'm trying to do in a sense is help us figure out how to get off the beach, you know, and, and figuring out a local business model. Since you've been ahead of the curve a lot, I can't help but ask you, where will media and news media head uh, in the future? What do you see coming that's different from today, um, perhaps because of new technologies like big data and artificial intelligence? And and what will be the model, the business model of the future? Well, I mean, it, I'm sure it's going to change again. I won't hold again. you to it. Well, yeah. as I said earlier, like any time I ask that question, I always say, I have no idea. Because, I mean, if you'd asked me five years ago to predict that I would have gotten a fair amount of it wrong as well. But I still think yeah. it's going to move more toward um, a people-driven model. Yeah. I think it has to be. Um, I just don't I don't see the ad mark the ad model ever coming back to the sort of extent that's going to make local sites like ours sustainable on that alone. Interesting. It can be a piece of it. Yeah. It's never going to be the majority of it for local sites. Yeah. National international scale you can you can play a much more aggressive game on advertising. So I think when you get into local markets it's going to have to be loyalty play and that's going to mean spending a lot of time with your consumers like, you know, being with them. Mm-hmm. I think I think legacy media like television and newspapers, they do a good job of kind of being of the people. Mm-hmm. They don't do that good a job of being with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, with them literally. We have events and we talk to our readers. We introduce them to other readers and ask them to yeah. tell people about us. And so it becomes much more of a, a, a who you know and and how much you're willing to, how much energy you're willing to put into building a relationship with the audience. On the tech side, I mean, I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess at that. <laughs> I mean, I know the technology is going to get better. Uh, I think to your point about big data, I think you know we're, we're frightened about how much the internet, you know, our system seem to know about us when we navigate the web yeah, now. Yeah. Clearly, unless there's a real backlash on the privacy thing, which we have occasional signs of, but that gets overrun pretty quickly with like the, you know, well, it is convenient. Yeah. You know, I remember going back to early web days, you know, with Amazon, if you if you like this, you'll probably also like this. And I remember about five minutes of panic about this. Wait, are they looking at what I'm... Yeah. And then the next reaction was like, oh, that looks like a good book. Yeah. Naturally, yeah. you know, and once the tech, once that feature actually was serving people things that they actually were interested in, I think yeah. they just kind of let it go. And I think a lot of the privacy things tend to go down that path where we don't like them, but if we see some inherent benefit from it, we sort of start to look the other way. There might be some backlash on privacy, but I still think if it serves the consumer, it's probably where big data and much yeah. more specific targeting are likely in our future. But do you think that the media will have an important role to be more, quote-unquote, responsible, given that they have so much data, they can influence so much? I mean, we see that in the social media world right now, but in the media, you can make that argument, too, and the role that it's been playing in shaping opinion, and especially yeah. the more you get to know people. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still, you know, for as many years as I've been on the Internet and as many years as I would like to think of myself as having been an innovator, I'm still an old-school guy on a few things, and one of them is I think we're still... We should still stick with objectivity as a, as a core goal. It's not a perfect, it's not an attainable goal in the purest form. Everybody has biases, and, yeah, but that's why yeah. we have copy desks and why we have other places. So, I mean, I do think we should, I do think there are certain things we should let go of, though. When we started Billy Penn, our tagline was a platform for a better Philly. Mm-hmm. And I had friends in journalism say, I don't think you can, you can't use that tagline. It's not our job to make Philadelphia better. 
It's like, but why not? Like, how many people walk around here thinking, I wish Philadelphia was worse? I wish the city would go downhill. I mean, your vision <laughs> yes. of what would make Philadelphia better and mine might not be completely aligned, but the yeah. whole idea is we want to inform you so that you can pursue your vision for what the great Philadelphia is. And if, you know, half a million people are doing that every month, the city probably will benefit from it. So I think we do have to give up this idea that we're like, you know, I think our story should be objective. I think we shouldn't tell people what to think. We should mm. tell them what we know so that they can process the information on their own. But I do think we ought to be open about the fact that our goal is a better society because, I mean, most normal human beings would want that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been fascinating. Uh, we will encourage people to visit your sites. Please, and yes, please do. That. Um, I think it'll be exciting. And anywhere else where listeners can uh, keep up with you. Uh, I have a Denver. We have a site called Denverite in Denver, uh, denverite.com, and the, the incline, pgh.com, which is a, a site we have in Pittsburgh uh, mm -hmm. called The Incline. So those are our three for now, and we hope to be in more soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. We need to take a short break now, and when we come back, I'll be joined by Gaurav Dillon, a Silicon Valley veteran who has been called a master plumber of the digital age. I'm your host, Saika Choudhury, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.